Hi, this is Stephen Cherry for Radio Spectrum. If there's one thing we can all agree on, it's that the world is not only changing quickly, it's changing at a faster rate than ever. Or does it just seem that way? Surely we can all agree that the Industrial Revolution has changed everything. Or has it? One noted economist says that there were in fact three Industrial Revolutions and only one of them, the second one from about 1870 to 1914, was important. In fact, he largely discounts what we call the Information Revolution as insubstantial. If you wanted to study the great trends and transitions of civilization, not just Western civilization, but all of it, and break it down into epochs and choose from the various transitions the five or seven most significant ones and study the interplays of these transitions, which are causes of the others and to what degree and why some occur quickly and others, like the electric car, are postponed for a hundred years. If you wanted to do all that, it would take a lifetime of study. In fact, you'd have to write 10 or 30 books, each one of which looks at some aspect of our world from a height of 30,000 feet, and then write an 11th or 31st book that was the encapsulation of all that wisdom. That certainly seems impossible. The last true Renaissance person, someone who knew pretty much all there was to know at the time, might have been Aristotle, with uh, asterisks for Franklin and Diderot and maybe Bertrand Russell. And yet, my guest today, who doesn't know all that is currently known, but knows quite a bit about almost everything about technology and the social and cultural changes that technologies have wrought and what causes technological change itself, has done just that. Vaslav Smil is a Czech-born distinguished professor emeritus in the Faculty of Environment at the University of Manitoba, a part of the world we don't always associate with the Renaissance. He's the author of more than 40 books in an enormously wide range of fields that includes energy and food production, environmental and population change, risk and public policy, and the history of technology and innovation. His new book, which in some sense encapsulates all his prior scholarship, is Grand Transitions, How the Modern World Was Made, published March 1st by Oxford University Press. He's also a contributing editor at IEEE Spectrum, and in that sense, I'm very happy to have the honor of calling him a colleague. Vaslav, Thank you, Steve. Welcome uh, to the podcast. I wish I would know as much as you say I know, but uh, I try, I try. <laughs> well, welcome to the podcast. What you know is pretty impressive, and the book itself is quite impressive. The book focuses on what you call epochal transitions. You name seven of them population, agricultural practices, energy sources and conversion, industrialization and the rise of services, trade, wealth distribution, and the environment. Maybe you could say a word about what makes these transitions so special. This is about what I call the real world, uh, unlike the world of uh, which I don't participate in much, the Facebook and Twitter and uh, TikTok or whatever else. Uh, I must be the last person on this planet without any Facebook. I've never tweeted, never will. I don't even have a cell phone or mobile phone. So this is the real world. You know, you could you could abstract all the mobile phones and all Twitter, but you would still need, uh, you, could, you could live uh, comfortably without them, but you still need uh, your wheat for your bread and 
steel for your bridges and uh, big ships uh, to bring all that stuff made in China to American and European shores. So what I uh, try always to look at is uh, what really makes the world go. What are the fundamentals which were there yesterday, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and which are here today and which will, which will be here with us uh, for a long time to come. So time to look at, at something which is really sort of, you know, not permanent, but kind of semi-permanent or almost permanent and which we always need, simply the basics. You first divide the world between the pre-modern and the modern, and you put the line, as many do, at about the year 1500 CE. And yet you note that growth and innovation existed before the Industrial Revolution, but incremental at best and inertial in the main. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the 1500 is, of course, and that's arbit. I, I always say, you know, actually, I've written quite a bit about how much I hate the zeros and five. You know, like now we will decarbonize the world by 2000. 50. Why not 2047, really? I mean, but uh, this 1500, uh, it's, it's not my line. It's generally in, in modern historical studies, uh, people say 1500, okay, that's the early sort of, you know, incipient modernization. Before that, it's sort of, you know, the middle period, the medieval, middle ages, whatever you call it, because... Um, you know, in, in many ways, you could make better lines like 1648, the end of the 30-year war in Europe. Uh, you could start mid-18th century with the encyclopedia writing in France. Uh, so there are different dates, but uh, it doesn't matter so much. Simply, whatever you put it there, 1750 or 1650 or, or 1500, before that, the growth, whatever it was, and innovation, and there was plenty of it, was simply so incremental, so slow, and it took so long to translate it into something tangible in the economy. So somebody, quote-unquote, invented something, but it took hundreds of years before that something moved from China to Middle East and from Middle East eventually to Europe. While now, uh, of course, somebody invents something and within 10 years, it's, it's, a, it's a new global product which everybody is buying. So this is the important thing, you know, that the innovation always existed. We kept always advancing. The economies are always growing, but the growth was incremental, fractions of a percent, and the rate of diffusion of innovation was very, very slow. You mentioned that the biggest set of changes are represented by an example you give, actually two examples, the first of which is someone who is a child in 1820 right. and then her grandson uh, 50 years later. Perhaps you could explain it. Yeah, I, 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 I tried to look at something which, was, which really showed that the, the biggest uh, of all breaks. And the biggest of all breaks is not whatever, the nuclear age after 45 or invention of microchips. The biggest break is the 19th century. Because as I use this example of that uh, little French girl born uh, in early uh, 19th century, uh, basically she was born into society, which in many ways looked not only, you know, 1805 or 1810 or 1815, right after Napoleon uh, left for uh, St. Helena, the society was much like 1715 or 1615 or 1515. It was basically subsistence agriculture economy where people work with their hands, walk with their legs. Uh, uh, there was no public transportation. Most people spend all their lives in villages. Uh, it was a hand-to-mouth existence. People share beds, uh, etc., etc. Well, by the end of that century, her grandson would be living in, in Paris, reconstructed, as we know, into these broad boulevards with uh, electricity everywhere inside the houses, uh, with the subway, uh, with uh, cars being bought by rich people, with travel possible. People are going for vacations uh, 
People had these summer houses, uh, impressionists were painting LA, people were buying their paintings. Uh, it was a totally new world of incipient affluence. People are eating better. There was more meat, there was more sugar, there was more information. Uh, simply everything changed. So when she was born in 1815 or 1820, she was closer to medieval times, while her grandson was pretty much close to our times because uh, for him, uh, you know, telephone, electricity, what he what he would be missing, of course, is this electronic stuff. But otherwise, you know, it was a world of steel, mass transportation, mass communication. So this was the greatest break in human history, the 19th century. Different technologies develop or diffuse at, at very different rates. Um, so, for example, the jet airplane phased out ocean passenger travel in a little more than a decade, whereas... The transition from farm labor, going from uh, human and animal labor to to tractor based, took something like eighty years in the United States, which is well. It's a, it's, 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 it's a matter of scale, you know. If you like, you know that the the most uh, most excellent example recently, of course, is the is the mobile phone. You have the infrastructure there. It took us hundred plus years to build, you know, from the first electric power generating power plants in eighteen eighty two Edison. So from eighteen eighty two, uh, we had like hundred twenty years up to two thousand to build this infrastructure. So electricity everywhere. Uh, so you could plug your little transformer and charge your phone. So all you have to do at the apex of that infrastructure, you have to bring that little cell phone and you can make a 100 million one year and 2 billion uh, next decade and so on. But it's a different thing if you have to redo the prime movers in agriculture to move from people and animals to tractors. Uh, you have to replace these things on millions and millions of hectares around the world in different conditions. The initial capital investment is great. You know, A person who is using an ox or a horse cannot just go and buy a tractor next day, really. So you have to become sufficiently rich to afford that uh, so, you know, this is the, the fundamental transition, like changing from uh, animal and human labor to mechanization agriculture or changing from uh, transportation, just walking around and or taking a stagecoach or riding a horse to developing the network of railways and then, you know, shipping companies and then airlines. These are these profound transformations which necessarily takes decades and decades. Now, you mentioned, of course, that once we got jetliners, jetliners eliminated the transatlantic crossing within a decade. But, you know, it took us a while. The first flight uh, and the first commercial flights just before the First World War, first commercial airline, 1921, uh, if I'm right, or 19, 1919, uh, the Dutch KLM, and, you know, the jet flights uh, on 1957. So even that took decades uh, before we got from first commercial flying to jet flying. So most of these transitions take a long time. Some of these transitions exhibit what you call an S-shaped curve. Uh, I wonder if you could describe that a little bit and, and how common are they? Well, it's a, it's a classical, it's a classical uh, growth curve. Uh, namely, you start slowly, then you get into the period when things... Uh, accelerate and then of course you reach the peak growth and after the peak growth you still grow by a slow rate and eventually it saturates. The saturation levels uh, again there is nothing universal about them. America basically is saturated let's say let's talk about what you see around you go like uh, oh, let's say I mentioned this mobile phone so basically everybody has a mobile phone now even children like whatever you know even preschoolers many preschoolers have, uh, have a cell phone so probably we are very close to saturation whatever it is you know certainly not 100 percent but it's probably 90 percent plus 
TV. Who doesn't have a TV? Color TV, big TV, whatever. So we've saturated. It took us about from in the US, it took us from 1930s, but the pre-war TV was very, very minimal. So let's say, you know, from the late 40s uh, to uh, late 60s, by the time everybody had a color TV. On the other hand, something saturated very low levels. Everybody has, uh, in America, everybody has air conditioning, has had air conditioning for probably, you know, a couple uh, or three decades now. But very few people, relatively speaking, in Europe have air conditioning. Another thing which Europeans don't have is a um, closed dryer. Uh, because electricity, most closed dryers are electricity-driven uh, power. And because electricity is so much more expensive in Europe, most Europeans are still hanging uh, their clothes outside, no matter if it's in Italy or in rich Germany. So saturation at, uh, at uh, closed uh, dryers in Europe will never be as high as in US because of the differential prices in electricity. So there are different S-curves, different uh, rapidities and forms of these curves and different saturation levels. But just about everything you look around the world, no matter if it's the ownership of this or that, or you know, different activities, uh, tourism, buying things, uh, selling things, most of these things, the growth conforms to S-curves. Some of these curves are very interesting. You, you note in the book that uh, by 1930, urban horses were almost completely displaced by electricity and the combustion engine. Uh, but the total tractor count was very low. And the United States had more horses and mules uh, in 1930 than it did in the 1890s. Yeah, you see, actually, the, the number of uh, U.S. is special in, because of the mule population. In other countries, people either have oxen or horses. They have either horses, but poor, poor farmers had mules, especially in the south. Actually, the population of the number of horses and mules, that is, draft animals in agriculture in the U.S., peaked only at the end of the First World War. It depends how you count it, really, because not all of them were working. So, you know, let's not people, they peaked around 1918, 1919, or 1920. That was the time is the largest number of animals, which was like, you know, two decades after the introduction of first tractors. But first tractors were very, very expensive. Nobody was buying them. Even through the 1920s and 1930s, much of the agriculture in large parts of the U.S. were horse or mule drawn. Even after the Second World War, there were quite a few states in the U.S., uh, uh, in the South, Alabama, Mississippi, where there were a large number of mules and horses. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture stopped counting the working horses in farming only in 1963. So by 1963, basically, there were less than half a million or so working horses. They stopped counting them because everything was tractors and combines. But it took, it took us, uh, in terms of tractors, from, let's say, you know, 1890s to 1963 even in the U.S. For some reason, I was reminded uh, when I read that, that the uh, transition from film to digital photography and the, uh, the fact that Kodak, contrary to popular belief, had many patents in digital photography and cameras, it was technically ready for the transition as much as any company, but its finances and corporate culture was incapable of making this transition because right up to the end, it was making more money than ever from its film businesses. These transitions are pretty complicated. 
And that's a story of many, you know, Kodak is, Kodak is just one of many examples like that, you know, when the people had it at their fingertips, they could have, uh, I mean, what they had was bulky and it wasn't, you know, it, it needed lots, lots more development. But certainly, as you say, they had it within the company, if it would have been better managed, better, they could have been the king of the heap. Uh, and where are they? But, you know, the same thing is true about, uh, about search, right? Look at Google. Google is now totally dominant. Google wasn't there at the beginning at all, right? Uh, especially in, in uh, it's been always like that, you know, that many people miss the boats uh, uh, in, in history of technology for past couple thousand years, but it's more common recently when people who started, who really innovate, who get the ideas, they never develop it. And the latecomers grab it and become billionaires overnight. Uh, you note that a hundred year gap in the history of electric cars, uh, that is to say, at the turn of the 20th century, electric looked like the way to go. Edison certainly believed it. It was one of the few transitions he misjudged. You say that the transition from gas to electric vehicles, which we're only now starting, will take many decades to complete. Many observers think it will come now very quickly, and certainly if we're to stay anywhere near the Paris Accords 1.5 degrees, it had better come quickly. But you see, they are not coming quickly. If you look at this, they are coming. They are coming quicker than ever, that's for sure, really. And this will not be the abortive case like it was in the first uh, decade of the 20th century. So they are coming, will keep coming. But if you look back, what is really instructive to look back at the forecast, because you see people are forecasting constantly all the time. Everybody's forecasting. So you go back to 2013 or 2012 when the wave started and people said by 2020, how many electric cars we will have. You can see that every forecast issued for the number or penetration rate of electric cars, it should be in 2012, 2013, 2015, 2017, all of these forecasts have been wrong by up to an order of magnitude. By the time we should have now 20% of cars or 7% whatever, while in some countries it's 0.7% or half a percent or 1%. Look, globally, I think best is the global figure because if you, you mentioned the, uh, the, the climate, if you want to, really to help the climate, you have to do it on a global scale. If you totally decarbonize in Switzerland or in Canada, 37 million people, and China keeps plowing ahead makes no difference. You have to do it on a global scale. Globally, we have now 1.4 billion vehicles on the road, cars and trucks and buses and things that go, 1.4 billion. We have 10 million electric cars at the end of uh, 2020. 10 million was 1.4 billion, 0.7%. So, so fast it has gone. So if something has gone from basically zero in 2000 to 0.7% in 2020, it's not going to go to 50% in 2030. That's a kindergarten algebra. It's very hard to tease out the intertwined causal relationships between these grand transitions. For example, declining birth rates, which have greatly slowed down population growth, are usually thought to be largely a consequence of increased household income. But you note that the causal arrow can go the other way as well, and other factors are involved. I wrote a little bit about it in the preface to the book, why I don't have any graphs of these things, right? Because all these things, of course, are interconnected very intimately and in many, many, many ways. 
And so you could start doing these things. You know, here's the arrow from energy to food. And of course, there are many arrows and the vice versa. And from energy to everything else and from population to labor force and labor force to economic productivity. And this is what people have been trying to do with all kinds of the uh, models uh, going back to the limits of growth model in the early 1970s, which started at MIT in the late uh, 60s with these uh, world models. And I resisted, and I, as I explained in the preface, I chose not to do any of these things because uh, we should do ourselves a service. We should not simplify these things and do these nice little graphs. You know, here is energy and arrow to environment, and that's polluting it, and energy and arrow to food that's supporting the food production. It is so much more complex than we we, we understand it's much more complex, but we really shouldn't be trying to graph it or simplify it because it's doing us a disservice. Then we are surprised that something you know, emerges from the kind of uh, whatever, as you Americans say, from the left field. And that's what it is really, right? That uh, we always underestimate the complexity of complex systems, and this gets us into trouble. I'm not going to say anything about COVID because there we underestimated very well-known complexity, which we had to expect, which many of us were expecting in my 2008 books about global catastrophes and trends, I said, the next major pandemic is inevitable before 2021. And it was no great feat of forecasting because these things always come and go. And we always underestimate these things and we are always surprised. So uh, this is why I, you know, don't like the idea to simplify these links because uh, in reality, they are much more complex than we envisage. I alluded earlier to the Northwestern University economist, Robert Gordon. Uh, He notes, as you do in the book, that growth rates uh, using measures like GDP were very low, at times nearly stagnant until the Industrial Revolution. Your book puts it at approximately 0.01% per year for the first thousand years in the Common Era, and about 0.1% for the next 500 years or so. That's an order of magnitude, but it's still very low. During the Industrial Revolution, we've seen rates of 4%, 6 8 even 10% claimed in China. But in the Western countries, we're largely back down toward 2%. Gordon claims the low numbers are the norm, that the high rates were an anomaly, and that we will be back down to 1% or even below that by the end of the century. What are your thoughts? The world of economists is divided into, uh, I mean, there are many divisions, but in, in, in this instance, there are simply two divisions. People who think like Gordon, and I very, very much agree with him because uh, I share his uh, deep conviction that there are fundamental limits to the technical innovation and to speed of economic growth. And to people uh, like his colleague in the same faculty at the same university, Joel Mokir, who thinks that, you know, invention will get us through everything into everything forever. There is no end to it and, uh, and that the future is brighter than ever. I go with Gordon as a student of long-term development in uh, technical advances. Uh, You can see it, you know. You can make only so many fundamental breaks. We still have a wheel. And that's some very damn old invention, right? And it's just very difficult for us to do better than a wheel. And we still have Edisonian electricity. Let's face it, right? In spite of all this this hoopla about all this... uh, 
personal portable electronics. This is still an Edisonian system. Still is a generator and still is a transformer and there is a transmission and there is a uh, whatever, you know, low or high voltage and it's AC or DC really. And that's all 1880s and we haven't made any fundamental difference to this in 100 years. And we still have an internal combustion engine and that's also 1880s. And we still are making steel and ammonia and um, aluminum in pretty much the same way as we were making 100 years ago, really. So let's not exaggerate the rate of these technical innovations. And these technical innovations cannot drive because they kind of mature, that S-care forms and they mature and they level off. They cannot drive forever the economic growth or whatever, five or six or seven percent. So yes, I'm very much with Gordon that in long run, the societies will have to settle into much lower, much more supportable rates of growth, especially as they are getting older and especially as many of them now are dying out. How can you support a high economic growth when a population shrinks by half a million people as it does now in Japan every year? There are people who think that machine learning uh, and AI in general will produce some of the same dramatic changes that the steam engine produced. Yes, of course, of course. And you know, I'm the wrongest possible guy to talk about this because here I am the deepest of deep skeptics. I think, you know, if you would ask Gordon about this, he might be even more kind of, you know, up on this than I am. I just do not see any AI economy by next Monday. And by next Monday, I mean 2030 or 2040, it will be very slow in coming because it has been very slow in coming. And there are some fundamental reasons why, you know, because it's just not so easy. Look, you know, the fundamental metal of the civilization is steel. A few years ago, I wrote a book about just about steel making. Nobody pays any attention to steel. It's some kind of, you know, outdated, old-fashioned stuff. But without steel, there is nothing in modern civilization. It's the fundamental metal. What do you need? You have to dig up tremendous amount of iron ore somewhere in Canada or in Brazil and then bring it to big steel mills, which are now mostly in China, in Japan. And then you have to dig up lots of coal and make lots of coke and put it into blast furnace and smelt it. How the hell you make it an eye? You know, this is a mass movement, mass scale. We make 1.6 billion tons of that stuff every year. This is not easily amenable to tapping into computer. That question of high growth rates and whether they're uh, anomalous makes me wonder about other things that might turn out to be just anomalies of a few hundred years or even a hundred years instead of the norm. Two that come to mind are antibiotics and literacy. Are they anomalous or are they norms that will stay with us? And, and are there other anomalies that we take for granted? Well, you know, let's, I just I just that's the, the last one literacy because, you know, that's uh, I would have never thought about it in this talk, but uh, this is my favorite topic, actually. And I'm terribly biased because I'm a, I am a man of old European culture. So, you know, I'm multilingual and I read in many languages and I read voraciously everything which comes uh, under my eyes, you know. So I would think already the literacy is over because the, the people now are just, you know, functionally illiterate. They haven't. I mean, who the hell is classics? I mean, 19th century, early 20th century, even the even the mid-20th century classics, you know, how many people now, you know, in the US, you know, Faulkner, Hemingway, Steinbeck, what does it mean to people, really? Forget about Zola and uh, and Dima and uh, Turgenev and, you know, forget about the Russians or uh, Navarism. So, I mean, this has already happened, really, that tapping into computer, uh, relying on all these uh, self-correction things or whatever, people cannot spell 
for that reason, when I, I retired in 2011, but long before that, I stopped asking my students to write essays because it was really painful to read their spelling. They just couldn't spell. Why? They, they don't need to spell. They just simply, the spell checker will, you know, correct the uh, spelling. So uh, literacy definitely, it may be very high, whatever it is, you know, 98%, whatever, but the real literacy is much lower than during the three generations ago. Um, grandparents, my parents, grandparents, people are more deeply literate than they are now. Absolutely. I have absolutely no doubt about it. Yeah. My mother's high school education, I think, is better than a a two-year community college degree is today. What about antibiotics? Uh, So far, we have uh, kept ahead of the uh, mutations and, and adaptations of germs, but maybe that won't last much longer. Well, my son is an organic synthetic chemist working in the Ontario Institute of Cancer Research, so we talk about these things all the time. But as you know very well, the answer is very simple uh, for antibiotics. Uh, there is no money in it. You need it only for those seven, ten days, and then you are cured and you don't need it. So it's not like your uh, cholesterol or high blood pressure thing taking every day for the rest of your life, really. And the tomes and tomes and thousands of papers have been written about this in the past 20 years, how we are running, uh, we are falling back and how we should be developing more and you know but uh, everybody's just writing and very few people are doing it because there is no billion dollar drug at the end of this really so so far as you said we've been just you know a little bit ahead also with some of these especially is is, uh, south african forms of of antibiotic resistant tuberculosis it's coming pretty closely but so far we've been you know running ahead but that's uh, one of these you know 64 million or billion dollar question, how long we will be able to do it, really. It requires a new model of drug invention and drug development. And as you have seen now with this vaccine, even in the emergency situation, the world is not ready yet to come really together and do some global sharing and global development. It's still very much company by company, country by country. Uh, I have one further question following up the idea of uh, economic growth and growth rates. GDP is a terrible measure of the economy for many reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Horrible, horrible. I'm going to name just three. It, it measures growth. So an earthquake or a tornado is a plus to, to GDP um, because we have to rebuild. GDP doesn't distinguish between, say, a coal generator that's ruining the environment and a wind farm. And, and finally, it doesn't properly account for things like Google search, which is virtually free to the end user, or the fact that a $600 TV today is much better than a $600 TV of 10 years ago. How would you like us to measure growth and economic activity? Well, I thought about this for, for many, many decades because in my writings, I'm not an economist, but you know, you've got to, when you write about energy, environment, food, you, you, you run into uh, economic question, you run into economists writing all the time. And of course, GDP, I mean, you cannot stress enough how horrible measure it is. Uh, the more crime in the city, uh, you hire more policemen and there are more uh, emergency room visits and the GDP goes up. Uh, I mean, you know, it's 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 absolutely. Plus, of course, it doesn't measure properly steel versus people who are tapping into computers. People who are tapping into computers, especially when they are lawyers, we award them like whatever thousand bucks per hour for their quote unquote consultations. People who make steel, we say, oh, I'm just schmucks making steel, right? We pay them fifteen dollars per hour or twenty five, right? So uh, that's that's another part which which makes this GDP of these rich countries uh, uh, bigger than it really think because uh, people who run the show are are awarding themselves more money than people who make steel or shoes. Really. But uh, the problem is that when you think about these things, and many people, many economists, 
have been very unsatisfied with this, and they've tried to come up with better measures. It's simply damn difficult to come up with a better measure than this totally inadequate, horrible money measure. That money measure, you know, that monies can dissolve everything. They can dissolve steel and shoe and, and a lawyer. Everything could be turned into dollars per hour, really. But if you make that steel, there is this effect of the steel on the environment of yeah, that lawyer is constantly flying uh, to meetings in Asia and has the effect on the whatever emissions of CO2. How do you make that into money? It's very difficult because there is no common denominator and there are so many different activities. So you have, you have difficulty to using the yardstick which could measure all of these things and you have difficulties converting it into some common denominator. So people try to, you know, kind of, you know, sustainable uh, measure of growth. People try to put the environmental effect convert into money. None of these measures, and people have tried many, many times over the past few years, none of these measures took the root. And GDP is still with us, and I'm afraid will be with us in the next 20, 30 years. It's, it's, it's awful, but it's the best thing we have. It's a terrible thing to say, but that's the way it is. You mentioned uh, your, your book about steel. It's, it's actually called uh, Still the Iron Age, Iron and Steel in the Modern World. That book and the new book put me in mind of a question that a University of Pennsylvania economics professor asks his Econ 101 students on the very first day of class every semester. The question is this, if you could have a free income without work of $70,000 in 1905, you would have a grand house, you would have servants, a fancy carriage, and so on. If you had a free income of $70,000 in 2005, 100 years later, you would merely have a comfortable middle-class existence, but you would also have refrigeration, air travel, Google, the aforementioned antibiotics. I'm curious which you would choose. Oh, definitely uh, today, because you know the, the odds of living, the fundamental risk is the the, the the is the risk of premature dying, really, right? And so there is no contest there. You know that uh, I may feel in many ways more comfortable in my mind as a man of 19th century, uh, because that's the century which I really truly admire and which created what we are. But it was a century, of course, where there was no cure for tuberculosis and where children were dying prematurely. So in terms of uh, health advances, also. So it made tremendous advances, you know, between 1800 and 1900. We made tremendous advances in health and public health, but it still, it was a very dicey world where, you know, tuberculosis was mowing people down right, left and center. And uh, when we had no antibiotics and uh, when uh, simple operations, uh, which today are routine, uh, even, the, you know, the cancer operations, uh, breast cancer, prostate cancer, uh, that was only in the very, very beginning. So oh, definitely right now, because the fundamental risk uh, has been reduced to such a level that average life expectancy has increased by more than 50% during the last century. If I could return to the beginning of our conversation, uh, is the world changing at a faster rate than ever, or does it just seem that yes, way? Yes, it seems that way. You may have read one of the essays I wrote for Spectrum uh, recently was about uh, perception of pandemics. Um, that I calculated that uh, the, there was one in 57, 58, and one in 68. So I went back to population studies and calculated how many people have been at least 10 years old in 57, so they could have the memories, right? Assuming that by at, at age 10, you have some memories which you retain for later, and how many people are alive in 68. And of course, by 68 and to 2019, uh, uh, you've got more than 1 billion people alive who should at least remember 1968 pandemic. And I kept asking around, you know, and nobody remembers 1968 pandemic. 
even that one billion plus people who were at least 10 years old in 68, and there were a considerable number of people who were alive uh, 10 years old in 57, and nobody was 57 pandemic. One in 68 was milder than the one we have now, but one in 57, if you recalculate proportionately for the population of the world in 57 and now was much, not much, but substantially more infective and substantially more people died than the one now. And, you know, nobody remembers it. Why? Because it wasn't remembered. Every every new death wasn't reported every almost every second on CNN in that running thing at the bottom, how many people infected, how many people died. It was the most reported pandemic ever in 57. I went into sources. There was nothing in the economic growth. Nothing was closed. Schools were not closed. The planes were flying. Nothing was shut down. Yet, proportionally, more people died in that pandemic than in the pandemic right now. So this is to answer, you know, the question. Yes, you know, everything is now, you know, everything is overreported, overdone, exaggerated. Yet, you know, you look back at one week later and the big news of one week ago is gone and done. Nobody thinks about it anymore. So everything is more ephemeral. Oh, that's an interesting metric to answer the question by, but let me offer a, a counterexample. Well, we were discussing literacy and uh, and and your your hypothetical French grandmother. I'm going to switch that up uh, just a little bit and uh, and ask you. I mean, Marcel Proust, who was born in 1871, uh, he would recognize and understand the medieval world better than he would understand uh, the world of today. I don't know, really. You see, the, the thing is that uh, that uh, we interpret too much, really. I've been trying in my books, we try to come up to some easy, big conclusions, like, you know, this is unprecedented. Like, AI will come and will change everything. We say everything. You know, why we can't just simply say, okay, there is this new applied use of computers, which we call AI, and it will, you know, make some fundamental... But why don't we say it will be fundamental change? It will change everything. So, you know, this we try always too much to deduce too much. So I am trying, you know, not to be so deductive. I recognize, let's say, you know, that maybe I go overboard with 19th century. Also, I don't think I do. I think it was a really fundamental break in human history, right? But not everything has changed because, as I say, you know, horses, I remember, you know, even after the Second World War in Europe, there were quite a few horses around, even in European cities, they were going down the road. Not that many, but, you know, so it just takes a long time. Nothing so fundamentally, so fundamental till you look at, you know, there's a kind of the hindsight of uh, several generations. So I argue that we should not generalize so much. We shouldn't say, you know, it is so unprecedented because in so many ways, in so many ways, yes, but in so many ways, no. So my answer leaves many people dissatisfied because I refuse to say, you know, it's really so path-breaking, so earth-shattering, really. I argue for the consistency. For Yes, it changes rapidly, but still in a way, it's a part of a long-run continuum. I'm always simply mindful of history and I'm mindful of not making too much of the recent advances. We need some perspective and to look back at them rather than to look ahead for them. Well, Václav, we've, we've barely scratched the surface of the new book, which has a thought-provoking observation on every one of its 300 pages, uh, often more than one uh, thought-provoking observation. Thank you for the complete body of your work, uh, for this capstone achievement, and for joining us today. Okay, thanks, Steve. We've been speaking with Václav Smil, Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of Manitoba, Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, member of the Order of Canada, scholar extraordinaire, and author of a new must-read book, 
Grand Transitions, How the Modern World Was Made. Radio Spectrum is brought to you by IEEE Spectrum, the member magazine of the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, a professional organization dedicated to advancing technology for the benefit of humanity. This interview was recorded February 17th, 2021, on Adobe Audition via Zoom. Our theme music is by Chad Crouch. You can subscribe to Radio Spectrum on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google, or wherever else you get your podcasts, or listen on the Spectrum website, which also contains transcripts of all of our episodes. We welcome your feedback on the web or in social media. For Radio Spectrum, I'm Stephen Cherry.